Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I'm excited to welcome the program award-winning author and writer, Paul Dixon, author of Leo DeRocher, Baseball's Prodigal Son. Paul, thanks for calling. How are you? Good. Tremendous today. The book comes out today, so it's a good day. It's a good day, but also think about this also, Paul. It's a good time because I think baseball is one of your favorite sports, and soon the season's going to begin. I'm sure you're getting excited for April, aren't you? Oh, yeah. No, in fact, I've been having fun even with this World Baseball Classic, which has a lot of good baseball in it. So We're talking about baseball and all that. Now, I was getting a huge education, a huge education uh, looking back at Leo DeRocher because, Paul, I, I don't, I mean, again, this is a different time for baseball. I've heard of him, but a lot of people don't know a lot about him, do they, Paul, except a lot of baseball historians. That's one reason why you wrote the book, right? Yeah, and he was, you know, he defined baseball through so many eras. He plays for, you know, all the great teams. He plays for the New York Yankees, the Murderers Row Yankees. He plays for the Cincinnati Reds. He plays for the uh, murder, for the, um, Gas House Gang Cardinals, the Brooklyn Dodgers. As a manager, he's there for all these great events, the bringing up of, of Jackie Robinson onto the Dodgers. He's portrayed in the movie 42. If you remember, he's also, uh, you know, he's there for the Bobby Thompson home run uh, as manager of the New York Giants, the most famous home run in yes. baseball history. Goes on to manage the Cubs, the Astros. So he really, you know, he he he's sort of baseball history from the time of Babe Ruth and Prohibition up through the moon landing and the Vietnam War, and and so you know he's he's in this huge period of American history, and during that period he is controversial. He probably leads the the major, one of the leading managers to be ejected in baseball history. He is controversial. He's involved in all sorts of problems he's suspended for a year he's he's got some problem with gambling he's got some problems with he goes he has four wives not all of whom leave him in the most happy situation um but he is you know he's and he's married to a movie star he's also the first really great uh um sort of athlete celebrity he he appears in every television sitcom of the sort of the black and white era. He's in Mr. Ed, he's on the Munsters, he's in the Beverly Hillbilly. He's all the way through that stuff. So he really is a character. Interesting. Now let's talk about the controversy of him. As a manager, why was he so controversial, Paul? I think he fought with everybody. He he learned very early in, in, in his career as a player he learned this when he was playing for the St. Paul Saints in the minors. One of the managers told him, he said, you know, people don't come here to watch you just stand out there. Get in fights. Get in arguments. Get thrown out of the game. They come to watch you after a while. He, he saw himself as a thorn in the side of every umpire. And so he was constantly being suspended three days here, starting fights. Uh, it was, he was really a brawler. And uh, a couple of times he actually got involved in in, in, in fighting with fans. And, and so he had this hanging over his head. And he also had 
some of the players he rode of mercilessly. And so he's the only manager in history to have not one, but two clubhouse revolts where the players literally don't want to play for him. And so he's, but he's also, he has a lot of, he's suspended for years. He's the only manager in history suspended for a year. That's because of a whole lot of things, but part of it is because of his association with, with gamblers and, uh, bookies. Not, you know, he's not, Betting on baseball as much as horses, but he's he's doing it all the time. So Pete Rose should have learned from uh, Leo DeRosa, shouldn't he have? <laughs> it sounds like he could have got a a lesson yeah, before yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it, it's a it's a legitimate thing to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's look at let's look at uh, ultimately what made do you consider him like almost like a Bobby Knight of of baseball managing the way he was just so uh, you know in-your-face type of of a, a manager compared to, like, let's say Bobby Knight is a coach for Indiana and stuff and is winning? Yeah, yeah, no, in, in fact, he his style inspired a lot of other, you know, managers of that style. I mean, Billy Martin, Tommy Lasorda, oh, yeah. Earl Weaver all sort of adopted his, his style, which was bad at contentiousness. I mean, one of the rules in baseball today that says you can't argue balls and strikes was put in because of uh, DeRosha. Oh I mean, that was just to stop him from arguing. But he get up there and argue every 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 pitch. You talk about long games. He keep the game going all night. But I think he's remembered because when all was said and done, he was a great he was a great shortstop, not offensively, but defensively. He was a great right. shortstop, maybe the best of the pre World War II shortstops. And he went on to become a, one of the highest winning managers in history. In other words, he won a lot more games than he lost, and he did it at a cost. But he would he would be you know he wins three National League pennants. Um, he, he gets two over two thousand wins in his career. Um, he wins the World Series in '54. Manager of the Year three yeah. times by Sporting News. So his record. The reason people kept hiring him was his record. And the fact that he could take a, a team that was faltering and pull him back over the edge, back from the edge. Exactly. What would you rank him among yeah, managers like ever? Yeah. What would you rank him among managers all in, in, in all time in the major leagues, Leo? What would you rank him? Boy, I was. Yeah. I mean, I. I guess if you just to do strictly in a on a on a on a you know the level of. Um, Statistics. I would. I would. Uh, he would be six. Um, only. Only five other managers have won more than he did in terms of the number of games. I, I'd put him in the top ten, but I wouldn't put him in the top five. Um, I think he he did some things brilliantly, and other things he did uh, that actually def- to hurt his team. So, I, but but he, but it was probably the winning was he had some some years in which he just. He just got the most out of his players. Now, Paul, would also you probably liked the fact of him being a journalist, right? He did start, he was an entertainer-type journalist after his career in baseball. Did that interest you as well? Meaning, like, the different biographies he did and different things he did on the radio and things like that. Did that interest you as well in writing the book? Well, he was, his his biography is loaded with stuff that's made up. It's not... (laughs) <laughs> Very accurate. Uh, no, I think he was. I think it was. What interested me was 
that this was the 20th century man. This is a guy who, you know, knew Judy Garland, knew Greta yeah. Garbo, knew oh, yeah. Danny Kaye. You know, he had all of these characters. So there was two guys. One guy is this fierce, relentless, umpire-baiting manager. On the other hand is this guy who goes on, you know, he's on with Mr. Ed, the talking horse, yeah. in, a, in a famous episode of Mr. Ed. So part of him is, Everybody in America knows who he is. He sues Jaja Gabor for a million dollars. He's on the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. He's on this show. Oh my He's gosh. on that show. Game of the week. Oh, yeah. So you've got, a, you've got a celebrity. Exactly. All right, so you can pick up your uh, Leo DeRocher, Baseball's Prodigal Son, and all finer bookstores, and also at your website, right, Paul? What is your website for people? Yeah, and it's also, on, it's, yeah, and it's also at Amazon it's starting today as well. Today's the opening day, yep. And then where can uh, your website is pauldixon.com, is that correct? Uh, uh, PaulDixonBooks.com. Paul, okay. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for calling. Uh, enjoyed the convo. And uh, thank you for educating me on Leah DeRocher. Take care, man. You too. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TiltedOrNeilHaley.com, and I have celebrity handicapper Brandon Lang. And, Brandon, I, I wish I could play a soundbite right now because I told you to look out for Wisconsin, and you made this outrageous comment, there's no way Wisconsin beats Villanova. I said that's the only game I'm nervous about if, for Villanova to win the national championship. Do you remember our conversation last week? Absolutely. I, I, listen, I, I hate Wisconsin. The two teams I hate in college basketball have cost me more money than anybody because every time I go with them, they implode, are Wisconsin and Duke. So when Duke, whatever Wisconsin did to beat me, I celebrated and danced in the streets when Duke got beat by South Carolina. So uh, great call. I, I, I tip my cap. Uh, I think you're only down to two bottles of wine and still that big expensive dinner. So way to make a little bit of comeback there, Big Fella. Yeah, we're, we're making a comeback, but our Final Four looks terrible. We may, might have to just kind of reshuffle the deck for the Sweet 16 just to have fun so we don't give up. How many Final Four teams do you have left? I only have one. I, I made I some... Got, I, yeah. got, I, yeah. I got two, and I got my national championship game of Arizona and UCLA right there. So I'm, I'm fine, man. As long as I get Arizona and UCLA in the national championship game, I got money to on both to win it all. I'm... I'm home free, brother. Now, one of them get knocked off, we got problems, but... I screwed up. I picked Villanova. And so, but again, w- let's look at this, this Sweet 16. And, and honestly, the thing that it's all about matchups. I, 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 now I sound like ESPN. It's all about matchups. And the way the tournament, and I know you're ticked off about this as well, the way they seeded the tournament this year was ridiculous. Don't you agree? Wisconsin should not have been an eight seed. Yeah. Right? No, Dayton shouldn't have been a Dayton shouldn't have been a seven. Dayton should have been a lot lower. Wichita State should not have been a ten. They should have been a lot lower. Um, Middle Tennessee State shouldn't have been a twelve. They should have been. I mean, when I say lower, I mean higher. They should have yeah. been a higher seed. So they made mistakes all over the card. And so the committee does that every year um, because you don't have basketball people from top to bottom doing this. You have analytical people, and when that happens, you're going to have a misseeded tournament, which we did this year, and it's unfortunate because there's no way we should have got Wichita State and Kentucky in the, in the round of 32, um, but we did, and you live with it and go forward. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's that's the, the, the point. And so let's talk about why you think Arizona. Here's Remember, I was so high on Arizona last year, and they lost in the first round. So that's why uh, I'm a little concerned about Arizona. But you think the Pac-12 Pac is the best conference in basketball, don't you? It sounds like it if you have UCLA against Arizona. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Arizona's healthy for the first time. People have no idea how good West Coast basketball is, I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, UCLA and Arizona are dangerous. Oregon, if they have their big man, um, but I think they're running new red hot Michigan team. At the end of the day, I, I really believe we're going to get uh, what I said we're going to get. I believe we're going to get Arizona UCLA, which, by the way, I said last week, three of the best games I saw all year were all three meetings between Arizona and UCLA. And are you a fan of Ball? Do you think Ball's a player? Do you think he's as, as, as much as Dad thinks he is? What's your take on? Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he'll be a top three pick. He, you listen, he's, he's a player. He's a gamer. Unlimited range. I don't think he'll be as good as Steph Curry, but he'll be a very, very good pro. Absolutely. His father won't get the billion-dollar shoe deal. Whatever he's smoking, snorting, or shooting, uh, he needs to stop because there's nobody going to give him a billion dollars for his three sons. not happening. Well, unless his three sons are all as good as his, his first son, the other two. Could it could it be possible? Yeah. If, if all three are no, that good. The dad, this is the Yeah. Yeah, this is a dad that's a bit delusional, though. I mean, you know, you're taking the spotlight away from your kids, and it's unfortunate because that's what some dads do. And he's uh, a dad that found fame. Uh, like, he averaged two points a game at Washington State and says he can beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. Okay, all right, well, listen, stop sniffing glue. Uh, uh, just stop doing it and uh, or, or, or snorting Drano from underneath the sink because that's just not happening, brother. All right, so is Wisconsin going to win this week? Do you think they're winning Thursday or Friday, whatever day they're playing? Well, I'll tell you what, if, if you know, you beat Villanova, I get it. Um, they got a great matchup against Florida. I'm going to take Florida. Sorry. Uh, what? Keep going against Wisconsin. You're crazy. Because when they get bounced, when they get bounced, I'll be very, very happy. I won't bet them. I won't bet I know them. you won't. It's just like really the Packers. <laughs> it's just like the Packers. Yep. So-, so I will root against Wisconsin. I think Florida's too much for them. See, here's the thing that people, the tournament does not put into consideration, experience. Now, Florida doesn't have the experience that Wisconsin has setting up in this game. How many guys are from the team that had a decent tournament run? Who's left from Florida? Look at Wisconsin. They have experienced players. Uh, they're going to slow the game down. They're going to grind Bro. it out against Florida. What Bro. Okay. Bro. <laughs> okay. They just beat one of the top three teams in the ACC 65-39 and held them to less than 40 points. I get it. Good luck with that. Okay. Uh, upset of the week. Who do you see upset of the week? Moving on to the Elite Eight that shouldn't be. Anybody you have uh you're pulling for that's your 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 uh set up shot uh lock 'em and load 'em to get to the Elite Eight? Well, you got tight lines, but South Carolina plus three and a half over Baylor. I think I think you ride South Carolina uh, the way they're playing right now. Um uh, if you can beat Duke, you can beat Baylor. Um Kansas better be careful of Purdue. Um with, with the bigs of Purdue, that's a good matchup for Purdue. Everything else pretty tight line. I don't think Xavier can 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 upset Arizona that line seven and a half. I don't know if Butler um, can upset NC North Carolina, but if there was a big upset, don't sleep on Butler. They match up really well with North Carolina. And I remember earlier in the year I was talking about Huggins. I believe West Virginia wins and gets on to the Elite Eight. West Virginia is once they get to this point, they could go to the Final Four, Brandon. WVU, 
I hate you WVU. Put a bottle of wine on it. It'll get you down. To, it'll get you down to one. It gets you down to one. It back up to three. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, so West Virginia. All right. Why, why do you think West Virginia will not get to the Elite Eight at least? What's the reasoning? Because I think Gonzaga's. I think. I think Gonzaga's, Gonzaga's terrible. Team from, okay. From, okay. From number one to number ten, Gonzaga has great guards, and they don't turn the ball over. And if you handle West Virginia's press, they're in big, big trouble. And I think West Virginia's had a nice little cushy run here um, to the Sweet Sixteen. Um, if you break down basically what they've done. Um, you know, they beat Bucknell and Notre Dame. Trust me, those aren't Gonzaga. Okay. Follow on, buddy. I got to go. Okay, take care. All right, that's Brandon Lang, brandonlang.com. Right. Take care, man. Talk to you soon. All right? Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, bud. See ya. Bye. You're listening to the Total Celebrity Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Total Celebrity Show. I'm the host of the show, Neil Haley. You can go to my website, Tolter.net for more information, Twitter, Tolter. Neil S. Haley, Facebook, LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, Total Tutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, and Google Plus, and also on Periscope at Total Tutor. And I'm excited to welcome my guest on the line. I had my co-host, Coach Karen, all on the line, and her phone dropped, but I'm, I'm just absolutely honored to welcome the program, former Pitt basketball t- star and coach of the Arizona Wildcats, Sean Miller. Sean, thanks for calling, and how are you? Um, I'm doing well. How's everything in Pittsburgh? Everything is fantastic in Pittsburgh, and if anybody, and, and, and I'm just going to be waiting for Coach to call in, so I'll go in with some of the, the best questions I would ask in impromptu questions for Sean. I remember, again, the team, 1987. You know, you talk about the Panthers, but we do have our, 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 our my co-host, Coach Karen Hall, on the line, so I'm excited to welcome the program. Coach Karen Hall, Coach, you, you bounced off, but we do have Sean on the line, so you can introduce a little bit more. I've already introduced him, so we can get up right into the first question for him. Okay. Well, Sean, how are you today? Welcome to our show. Yeah, Karen, good Good to hear your voice. I uh, hope everything's uh, going well. Yeah, thanks. Same to you. I think the last time I've seen you, you were at Xavier, so you've really come around since that time. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, I want to get right into it, Sean. Um want to start with uh, – you know, your uh, ball handling skills and uh, kind of work your way and what it was like to play for your father. That must be such a wonderful relationship to have your dad on the sidelines um, as your coach. So can you yeah. take us from that time? Yeah, no no question. I mean, I think all of us, uh, to to a very large extent, are a product of, you know, how we grew up, you know, who our parents were, you know, how our family structure was, the the community we grew up in and, you know, obviously the, the schools that we attended. And in my case, you know, my very fortunate to have two great parents and, you know, my dad being the basketball coach that he is and still is and the passion and love for the game of basketball that uh, he had, you know, it was very contagious in my, in my house. So I grew up loving the game of basketball and, you know, he spent an, an amazing amount of time with me um, growing up. Every every time that he would go and, and become the coach of his high school, he was both the coach of his high school team and, and had his, his son around. You know, I, I seemed mm-hmm. to always be around him, which uh, looking back, you know, that was the greatest gift that he gave me. And, and me mm-hmm. learning the game, you know, being around so many different types of people. And then obviously uh, having the luxury of, of having – what I think is one of the great teachers of the game as my dad. And, you know, I grew up right. with the ball in my hand and, uh, and obviously a big reason why I'm a coach today. 
Would you mm. say, Sean, basically from wanting to grow up with the ball in your hand is just trying to emulate your father just just from the beginning, kind of saying, I, I want to be like him, would you say? And saying yeah, you, you know, play I, basketball? I think what he, yeah. gave, what he gave all of us, and, you know, my sister Lisa played at Elon College, uh, you know, Arch, who you guys are familiar with, you know, he played at NC State and now is very right. successful as Dayton's coach. You know, he right. gave us uh, the know-how, but also the love of the game. And, you know, you have to love what you do in life to be uh, to be any any type of success. And uh, I, I think that we learned from him that if you have a passion towards something, that you can really become good at it. And uh, he's a great teacher, you know, obviously a tremendous parent. And uh, and we were all really lucky to play for him as well because all three of us did, even my sister, he was our coach. Right. You know, uh, such a special relationship. And, and along with the the ball, the basketball skills that your dad was uh, teaching you all, also came with that was that leadership. So you were around him early, you know, on the court with him. But what about that leadership development uh, as you watched your dad coach before you were of age to play for him and then later? Well, you know, my dad also, you know, he he, he is a great competitor. Um, you know, everybody thinks they want to win. Uh, like like everything, some people want to win more than others. <laughs> and he, nice. he had that gene in him, you know, uh, not only the love of the game of basketball, but, you know, and anything he, he did, he he really competed and, you know, I think that you learn at an early age to, to how to win and the importance of it in sports. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, some of the things you're referring to being a leader stems from, you know, you really deep down caring right. caring about the outcome of the game, not just how you do as an individual, how many points you score, how much playing time you get in sports, but that the bottom line is, did you did you win the game or not? And you know, at an early age, he was a stickler on you know, if it's a shirts skins game, pick up three on three, one on one, five on five, outside inside, it didn't matter. You know, he would always make a huge deal about you have to know the score of the game. You know, it's your responsibility as a point guard, as a player in that pickup game, to know the score of the game and. You know, if you think about that today, the way it's organized, very few kids even think about that. I, I swear, I don't think yeah. I know the score when it's on the scoreboard sometimes. Right. I, I think that was a gift for us. And, and a lot of people in western Pennsylvania, uh, like myself, because of how important high school sports are and the great mm-hmm. team coaches, I think we all benefited from that. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it definitely seems like, Coach, you definitely uh, did benefit from it. Uh, Sean, and I think that the competitive urge and looking at the, the specifics, but what did you learn playing the game that really, I would say probably is the ball handling. Wouldn't you agree? That was something your dad really preached a lot was ball handling, right? See, right, right off the bat to become a great ball He handler. did. You know, basketball is a skilled game. If you look at Steph Curry, and, you know, maybe the game's greatest player right now. And, right. It's just unique right now in in the year 2016 to have somebody physically, you know, so normal. And not that he isn't talented, but, you know, his greatness lies in his ability to shoot and to handle the ball and pass it. And, and, you know, that's that's what 
you know, I think someone like my dad really always instilled, not just in his family, but in any player that played for him, the importance of being able to go to the foul line and convert two free throws, being uh, an efficient player, shooting the ball. You know, he spent a lot of time with Micah Mason, you know, at Duquesne. And mm-hmm. I yeah. talked to my brother last night, you know, Dayton and Duquesne had a really tough game at Dayton last yeah. night. And, you know, mm-hmm. my brother was raving about how skilled Micah is. And, you know, we both kind of laughed because, you know, all of the time that, that Micah, I think, spent with my dad and in a gym and learning, you know, there's a great example of when you become fundamentally sound and not just skilled but highly skilled, how you can become a really good basketball player. So um, I think anybody who's ever been around, my dad benefits from from his ability to be able to teach the fundamentals, passing, shooting, dribbling, and uh, knowing that basketball is a skilled game. Yeah, so we want to make sure that our listeners know that, um, you know, John Miller, who's our who's your legendary dad, but legendary to the basketball world, is uh, of Blackhawk High School. That's where you played, and that's where, you know, your dad did a lot of his crafting of all you players. And, uh, I mean, I just want to make sure that's noted. So we know who your dad is, but for all of our listeners, you know, we want to make sure they're insightful of uh, Coach John Miller. So, and, I mean, your your ball handling was um, crafted very early, and, uh I don't know if you get to talk about it too often these days, Sean, but this is a fun show. So, you know, how about that role in the Fist and Save Pittsburgh? Something I didn't even really know that. So um, <laughs> what, what was that like? <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, that, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. So a, lot of, a lot of the things for me when I was young and, and you know, I, I think my ability to handle the basketball and dribble, right. you know, more than one and spin and all that, it was more of a product of, of how much time we spent in the gym. I mean, okay. in the summer months, you know, in grade school, junior high, I mean, it was hours. I mean, every day uh, working yeah. to become a, a really good player. And it just so happened that in, in the route to become a really good player, I became an, an excellent ball handler and can do just about everything you could. And because of that, mm-hmm. I had some opportunities. But my quest mm-hmm. back then was to, to try to be the best player I could be. And, and that's yeah. the difference. Um, I think a lot of kids sometimes can handle two or three basketballs, juggle and do those things, but right. they don't have the ability to take that skill level and, and put it into to the, the court. And, you know, that, right. that was always our focus and my dad's focus and, and certainly mine. Mm-hmm. I want to bring back also your dad had a video out, right, if I'm correct, Sean, back in the day, a coaching video about proper ball handling skills and different other skills. Am I correct? Yes. I, I think it yeah. was uh, drill, drill for Skill. Um, there's, I think at the, one, at the time it came out, it was, there was an elementary um, an elementary level, an intermediate level, and, a, and an advanced level. And uh, and I believe I was the demonstrator, and, heck, that would have probably been when I was in high school the first time and then yes. maybe college. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember watching it, Sean. So uh, I, I remember watching it, China, as a big man, trying to learn how to become a better ball handler. So I remember it completely. So uh, it definitely part of the day, just kind of, you know, reminiscing about these things is fantastic. And, again, we're with Coach Sean Miller of the Arizona Wildcats. And, and Coach, Hall, I'm already going to grab you. we got to talk pit. 
I know this is it. I know. We got to talk Pitt now, uh, especially him choosing the University of Pittsburgh because those Pitt memories for me watching Sean Miller play, what a what a great time. So, Coach, what question do you have next? So, you know, we had Jason Matthews on, Sean, one of your uh, yeah. favorite teammates, and he just raved, raved about your um, your leadership ability as a freshman to come in with some great players as seniors, uh, Charles Mitchell and Wayne, but, you know, being able to take over that point guard role. So, you know, what was that like coming into a culture such as Pitt as a freshman during that time? Well, it was a big change, Karen. Um, you know, looking back on it, um, I can't tell you how helpful that experience has been to, you know, life after the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, first of all, you know, the friendships and, and the teammates that I had, uh, guys coming from everywhere, you know, all mm-hmm. growing up differently. But, you know, you learn that one of the gifts uh, as a college student athlete, especially at a very high level, is, you know, that, that all barriers are broken when you're on the same basketball team and yes. you have a, a bond and a friendship that unless you've experienced it, you can't comprehend, you know, the feeling, uh, you know, right. the love that you have for those guys. And, and yes. when I came in, Demetrius Gore and Charles Smith, they embraced mm-hmm. me. You know, they, they made me feel like they they enjoyed playing with me, that they wanted to be my mm-hmm. teammate. And, you know, I'll never forget that experience because when you leave a high school situation and you're thrust into that, and those guys have been in college for three or four years and who they are, you know, it, they don't, they didn't have to do that, but because they did, you know, I'm forever grateful. But now mm-hmm. uh, those feelings are really with me any time that a freshman steps into our program, that, that anxiety you feel when it's your mm-hmm. first time. Um, but And then the recruiting class that I came in, to pit with, uh, you know, Darrell Porter, right. Matthews, Bobby Martin, right. Brian Shorter. I mean, yeah. We were at the time if the number one recruiting class in the country. And, you know, John Calipari was our assistant coach, and he had a big hand in recruiting all of us. So, yes. right. um, and we're still, you know, close to this day. You know, I, I feel bad that I don't communicate or we don't communicate sometimes more than we really do in terms of, of, uh, those guys and myself, but Jason has been out here. Uh, Bobby mm-hmm. Martin has been out here a number of times. Uh, I actually talked to Charles Smith this past month, and he was talking mm-hmm. about making a trip out here. Same with Curtis Aiken. So awesome. I think the biggest thing, you know, with my time at Pitt is the friendships, the camaraderie, the lessons you yeah. learn and the relationships you have when you leave. You know, Nate Bailey, a really good friend of mine. And uh, where mm-hmm. did we meet? We, we met at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, Darren Morningstar. I could keep going on right. and on, but right. you, can right. you can bring that list yeah. and hail the pit for sure, uh, Coach Sean. Uh, let's kind of go right when you talk about, I want to ask your greatest mo- uh, memory playing for the University of Pittsburgh. Greatest memory. I would say it um, would have been uh, my freshman year when we won the Big East regular season championship. Uh, we actually clinched it in the Carrier Dome against Syracuse, mm. an early March game on CBS. And I think at the time it would have been the largest crowd to, to see a game at the Carrier Dome. You know, they, the talent that was on that court is amazing. I mean, they had Ronnie Cycli and Derek Coleman. Yeah. Wow. Uh, mm. Sherman, Sherman Douglas. I mean, some oh, yeah. unbelievable players. We had, obviously, Charles Smith, Jerome Lane, and, and our crew. But we won it. And, you know, if you think about, how great of a conference it was then 
in its prime where you played everybody oh, yeah. twice and you had juniors and seniors that still were in college. You know, I can make the argument that it was during that period of time that that may have been the most competitive conference ever in college. Right. You know, so for us to win the Big East regular season championship, I think we were a two-seed in the tournament, had a really difficult loss against Vanderbilt in the second round, but I remember that Big East championship more than anything else. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like a fast break, Sean. I mean, there's so many questions we can ask you, but we want to make sure, um, you know, we hit some of those highlights. So after Pitt, like, was coaching going to be a natural transition for you as you were nearing the end of your collegiate career? Did you think that was going to be a natural transition for you? I did, and, you know, it stems really from the questions that you, that you guys asked me a few minutes ago about my dad, and, you know, you, you learn the game. Again, you grow up in a certain house in a, in a community and the love of the game of basketball and, and me watching how he can impact young people and teach the game, that's something that I wanted to do. And uh, and then I had the additional experience of what I just referred to of, of mm-hmm. being in the shoes of of today's college basketball players where you know, mm-hmm. that I had played and, you know, you, you learn – through adversity and overcoming obstacles and everything that goes into being a student athlete. So that transition made sense to me, and um, I'm certainly glad uh, that I went that direction. Mm. I'm glad you definitely went that direction as well, Sean. And I think when you talk about not having time, you're one of the most intense coaches. You show that in so many ways. Uh, A phenomenal recruiter. So once you got your first coaching job, and I'm gonna, and I'll, I'll say it. You don't have to say anything. I wanted you to pick. I was so disappointed because I tell you, I knew you were gonna be a big time coach. You, I think you started out uh, at Xavier. Is, is that the first coaching job you had full time, head coach? Was it Xavier? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I became the head coach at Xavier after I was the assistant there for three years, and uh, then you know I, I left uh, Xavier to come here to the University of Arizona. And how do you become such a tremendous recruiter that you can get the best players to play for you, especially when we're talking about your Arizona recruiting and stuff like that? Where, do you, where did you learn all that ability to bring the right talent in? Well, first of all, you know, you, you, never, you never do it alone. Uh, I've, I've had some great coaches with me, coaching mm-hmm. staffs at both Xavier and here at Arizona where, you know, they do sometimes a lot more than the head coach does, but they don't get – the credit that the head coach does when it goes well. Uh, but I've also been very fortunate to be at two incredible places. Xavier University, you know, there have been a lot of head coaches that have been successful there. You know, Skip Frost, mm-hmm. and Bob Stack, Fad Mata, myself, now Chris right. Mack. And, you know, the common theme is if you're at a, a an institution, at a, at a program where people care, they support what you do. They invest in mm. your program. You have no excuses. You you can you can try to become the best team and program you can, and you can grow it. The University of Arizona is the same. You know, Lute Olson, uh, he's a Hall of Fame coach who was here for right. more than two decades. You know, everything was set up for success, and you know we've utilized uh, the great tradition we have. If you look at the Golden State Warriors. You know, their head coach, Steve Kerr, is, is an iconic figure here at the yeah. University of Arizona. Uh, Luke Walton, who, you know, is his assistant right. and did a great job filling in for Steve. You know, same with Luke. Luke played here, played in a Final Four. 
Mm-hmm. You look at their team. You know, Andre Iguodala is is one of ours. So when I talk about the tradition, not only do we have a, a place where people really care about our basketball program and this university, but the tradition is among the best in in the nation. So when you have those things, I think at your fingertips, it makes it a lot easier to attract future talent. Yeah. And, and you know what? Of all the great recruits that I've had um, in in the seven years here, and and now this is my twelfth year as a head coach. DJ McConnell could have been the best when you consider how mm-hmm. productive he was yeah. for us, how how many games he won in his two years, and just all of the qualities that he brought to the table, not just as a player but off the court. And you know, I know he's from Pittsburgh, but you know that. That guy right there, it's just he's made us all proud. And now to watch him in the NBA, I think oh, he's yeah. prouder. Well, well Sean, I mean, you certainly reached back. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to one more question. Uh, uh, Sean, you must be so proud of his last game, again, uh, uh, winning with the Sixers and how he's playing so well with the Sixers. It's so great. He is. And nothing surprises me about TJ. The only thing that surprised me is when his time ended here at Arizona – <laughs> that, that he wasn't more well thought of towards being an NBA player. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that he got the opportunity, and I know he'll make the most of it. I think he's coming coming out here this week because it's all-star break, so it'll be right. nice to see him. Great, great. So, I mean, you're moving close to conference championship time, Sean, so what's some thoughts as you move closer to there? I know you have some games left, but you got to be thinking tournament time also. Yeah, we have a big weekend this weekend. We play UCLA at home on Friday, and then we play USC, who's a very, very good team, on Sunday. Both teams have beaten us on their home court uh, in early January. And then we play uh, Arizona State at home. So we have three home games in a row. Uh, Arizona State is is a rivalry of ours, and obviously UCLA and SC, two really outstanding programs. So uh, we have a big stretch. We're 19-5. and five. Uh, I think like a lot of teams in this country, we've had our great moments, and, and we've certainly yeah. had some moments we wish we were better. We, we've dealt with a lot yeah. of injuries this year, and my hope yeah. is that we can be healthy down the stretch run and, and maybe play our best basketball here in this month of right. February and March. Right. Well, right. I, and I think that's the thing, Sean. This is the first year I think there's no real dominant team in college basketball. So the tournament is going to be where it's decided, the big dance. Because yes. I don't see a team like a Kentucky years before, you know, that's just so dominant, even though they didn't win it, that this year they're, they're, it's it's wide open with so many, probably five deep in each conference has a shot at winning the national title. Wouldn't you agree? You know, I, I would. Uh, there's a lot of parity, and I think we all know the reasons. You know, you, you lose your best players. Right. Great team, and we're a great example of that. I mean, we lost uh, Stanley Johnson, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. They left after their freshman and sophomore years. For yeah. The NBA. Another really good player, Brandon Ashley, left after his junior year. And, you know, the more successful you are in college basketball, the more turnover you seem to have. And, you know, that's – that's almost backwards. So because of that, there's there's obviously a lot more parity now than ever before. I know it makes it exciting uh, as it comes tournament time, but I think all of us who are in the game wish that you didn't have as much turnover as uh, as we do. Definitely, absolutely, uh, Coach. Uh, uh, any more questions? I got. I got. I'll have another. I have a pit question for Sean. 
Sean Earl. Well, I, I know you're going to get Coach... your pick question in, so go ahead. <laughs> no, I wanted a Coach Cal Perry question. Sean, how much did you learn from Coach Cal, especially assistant and at Pitt and, and specific things of just how to get a, I mean, to really be a motivator, but also really a, uh, uh, you know, somebody that makes people feel comfortable in so many ways and, and, and excited and want to play for you. What would you, how much do you think you've taken from Coach Cal in that way? You know, I'm very close with him, and, um, you, you know, he, he has a gift to make people feel like you know him. You know, he just, uh, mm-hmm. you meet him for the first time, or or he's somebody that you knew as a long, long time ago. Uh, he makes you feel welcome. He, he certainly never forgets where he's from and the people mm-hmm. that helped him along the way. You know, my dad helped him a great deal growing up, and uh, he's stayed in touch with him really for the last, really my lifetime. Um, and um, But he, what he's done, I'm glad to see him in the Hall of Fame, very, very deserved yes. of that. You know, one mm-hmm. of the iconic figures in college basketball for sure. Right. Well, we definitely wish you, um, you know, lots lots more wins as you near the end of the regular season and going into conference play and then NCAA post play. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing and making a difference, Sean. You're making a difference. We, we, we're we happy for you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And it's, it's nice uh, to talk with you because you're one of those people that have made a difference for a long, long time, especially in the inner city community in Pittsburgh. And I can remember like it was yesterday – your role in, with Ozanam and, and just helping young kids, you know, get to school and, and helping them understand they had a place to go in the summer. So uh, right. nobody has worked harder in that field than you, and uh, we all remember it. Well, appreciate that. Appreciate that. What would you say, last question for you, Sean, what, what, what do you want to accomplish in, in your coaching career? What is your ultimate goal as a coach before you retire? Especially you know, I just focus on career. trying to yeah. help the guys that are on my team and, and really develop. I think if you keep the the compass pointed in that direction, a lot of the success will follow. Uh, I don't know how long I will coach. I think the days of, of guys coaching, you know, 25, 30 years as a head coach, right. I think, because sometimes yeah. even if you want to, you're just not going to get there. There are too many right. things that can go against you. So I take it one day at a time and really enjoy coaching at the University of Arizona. It's a wonderful place. And uh, I wish we were a little closer to Pittsburgh. Uh, Every once in a while, you know, you you become disconnected with the time change. But I think Mm -hmm. as as time moves forward, we have, as a family, gotten used to being out here. And right now I look outside. I'm almost scared to ask you guys what it looks like. Yeah, no, it's cold. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's cold. It's cold, Sean. You can imagine it's 80 degrees and the brightest blue sky you could ever see. I mean, so it's completely different out here in, in the winter. And I think going up in right. Pittsburgh, you sometimes appreciate it more than maybe some people who've always lived out here do. All right, Sean, I know we can find – one of the funny things, Coach, is we can find uh, Coach Sean Miller on Twitter, as I see you tweet sometimes, Coach. So that's the best place we can find info on you, right, Sean? And yeah, the, uh, yeah, on a website. Yeah. During the season, I I stay away from from it as much, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm on there. It's the way of the world, so you might as well embrace it. <laughs> well, thanks for calling, Sean. It was an absolute honor, and hail to pick for sure. Okay, great talking with you guys, and good luck. Thanks, Sean. All right, take care, guys. Thanks, Sean.
Take care. All right, that was the Adult Celebrity Show. Take care, everyone. And now I'm excited to welcome to the program, if we do have Roger Stone on the line, New York Times bestselling author Roger Stone. Roger, are you on the line? How are you if you are? I'm with you. Delighted. Delighted to be here. Oh, Roger, we've gone from talking music to now talking what I love talking about this political season. And when I heard I had the opportunity to talk to you, I'm just excited because looking at how crazy this election season has been, uh, I'm sure you've been blown away by what's been happening as well. Well, I'm a veteran of nine Republican presidential campaigns, starting with Nixon all the way through uh, Donald Trump. Uh, And I've never seen anything like this. Uh, It's exciting. It's wide open uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, Bernie's putting up a much more spirited challenge to Hillary than I expected. Uh, Trump is pulled out to a substantial lead, but uh, we're heading into some crucial primaries here. Uh, if you love politics, it's a great time to be alive. Uh, and if you're uh, concerned about your country, you've got some hard choices to make. Yeah, and I, I have hard choices to make as well as a conservative who does an education talk show mostly uh, li- liberals uh, listen to and then also do the whole variety of interviewing people from authors to celebrities. And just to understand that if I would decide to pull the lever for Donald Trump – as a Republican versus it was Hillary Clinton, it would be very difficult for me just based on some of the things that he has done throughout this, this, this election process, which disappointed me because I'm used to Donald Trump, the celebrity apprentice, you know, making the right decisions, telling all the celebrities on the celebrity apprentice not to make these or even the apprentice, don't stick your foot in your mouth. And everything that he tried to teach those people that were going in the business world, he's done the opposite, Roger. That's what I'm so uh, confused about well look i don't argue that he's a, a perfect candidate and i certainly don't argue that he's a pure conservative um, i do think he has the most conservative uh, position on the four or five big issues that face the country uh, and i do think therefore he is the best uh, uh, prospect uh, for conservatives uh, this year the real point here i guess is that unlike any other candidate this season in both parties He's the only one not taking special interest campaign contributions. Yes. He's not. He's the only one not beholden to any billionaire, any lobbyist, any super PAC, any special pleader, uh, and that gives him an independence that I think the next president has to have, so we can make some fundamental changes. I worked in the U.S. Senate. Uh, I worked in the U.S. House. I've seen the budgeting process up close. It's true. There's hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of wasted federal dollars. But every one of those dollars was put in the budget by someone, some senator, some congressman, some lobbyist. Uh, And to actually cut federal spending, not just talk about it, as we Republicans have done forever, but to actually do it means you have to be completely independent from those interests. I think Trump could balance this budget. I think he's the only one, for example, who could. Interesting, and again, your your process and your experience, as I was reading up on it, you know, about uh, you've had eight, uh, all these national presidential campaigns and different things, leaving the GOP for the Libertarian Party. What do you feel is Donald Trump's platform that makes it so uh, such the person to, to really look at Roger to vote for? What do you feel? Uh, look, I, I think the whole... 
the whole rise of Trump is a repudiation of 30 years of bad decision-making, whether yes. it is Bush or Clinton or Bush or Obama. It all really is identical. What do we have? Endless war without explanation of why it's in our best interest in many cases, erosion of our civil liberties, massive uh, debt and borrowing, massive spending without regard to how uh, we will pay these debts, uh, high taxes on working people while the hedge fund managers on Wall Street pay almost nothing, uh, big bank bailouts, uh, a foreign policy that at best is entirely inconsistent and incoherent. We seem in the Middle East to have systematically uh, deposed our friends or our allies uh, and inserted our enemies. So um, I think people are sick of it. I think they realize that both parties are at fault. Uh, yes. And I think they're looking for something radically new and different. If you would take the people right now if in a poll on the Republican side and Democratic side of the primaries, it would be Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. It would not be Hillary Clinton or Ted Cruz or whatever, because people want to change. They want a drastic change on both party sides. And that's the biggest situation that what could happen if there's a broker convention, chaos could, uh, could develop. I know you have the experience of seeing this firsthand. Is there a chance for Donald Trump to just win out and not go to, a, go to a, the convention without the number of delegates he needs? It's entirely possible. Remember, there's still almost a third of the delegates to yet be selected. You have some big states coming up, including New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, uh, California, and others. Um, yes, I think he can get to 1237 before the convention begins. He may not be at 1237 at the end of the delegate selection process, but remember, there are more than 300 uncommitted delegates to be wooed, uh, and to be uh, and to be wined and dined and to be sought and all the candidates will be working on that. Uh, I do think that he can uh, that he can make the magic number. Um, I'm, I'm actually very optimistic now that he will, assuming uh, victories in some of these northeastern primaries, particularly where he is heavily favored. Um, if this goes to a second ballot. Um, I would predict that the establishment types like Neil and Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney will drop Ted Cruz like a hot potato, uh, right. and you'll get some dark horse nominee on a late ballot. The party at that point would be so badly divided, and the voters yes. would be so angry that their primary votes didn't matter at all. Um, I suspect the nomination would be close to worthless. And then let's say it was uh, Kasich. It would just be worthless in so many ways because so many people want a difference in Washington D.C. They don't want an they they want an outsider, and there's been history of that, Roger. Am I correct in the history of of presidential elections? Outsiders have won because people are tired of the establishment in both parties, right. Democratic and Republican Party. Ronald Reagan is the best example of that. What encourages me is poll after poll shows that almost a third of the Bernie Sanders voters would vote for Donald Trump in a face-off with Hillary Clinton. Those are not the hard, his hard-left supporters. You'll never get those. But these are the blue-collar workers who NAFTA has left behind, who TPP will leave behind. These global globalist national trade deals have destroyed our job market. Uh, they've destroyed the livelihoods of these voters. And that is the greatest fear on the left. That's why uh, the Trump rallies are being invaded by paid agitators, by professional uh, agitators uh, uh, recruited by MoveOn.org, uh, 
uh, paid for by by um, uh, George Soros, directed by David Brock, and they want to do two things. One, they want to foment violence so they can turn around and blame it on Trump. It's like, hit me in the chin, hit me in the chin. I dare you to hit me in the chin. I dare you to hit me in the chin. And then if some Trump supporter loses their temper and hits him in the chin, well, then they blame the violence on the Trump supporters, which is why anyone who is for Trump must exercise restraint. Violence, like you saw at the Chicago convention, destroyed Hubert Humphrey's campaign. Violence in Cleveland is the last thing we want. It would destroy Trump's general election chances. Uh, And then then secondarily, they want to uh, disqualify Trump uh, by calling him a bigot and a racist and a madman yeah. and so on. All of that is to scare away those populist Sanders voters who may end up with Trump in the fall. Right, and what's going to happen is they're fearful of this if Trump does get the nomination in both parties because what Donald Trump will do is a masterful job of explaining why he went far, far to the right, and now he'll go a little bit different in the general election, which is history, repeats always in certain ways but also explain some of the attacks after the Republicans are out of the way. Now it's the focus is just on the general election and Hillary Clinton. And I know Hillary does not want to run against Donald Trump or even debate Donald Trump because she got, she gets frustrated by Bernie Sanders. Imagine Donald Trump. I mean, it would be uh, uh, the most entertaining debate you've ever seen. Wouldn't it be? I think. Yeah, look, it would be it would be exciting because Trump is entirely fearless. I mean, he is just yeah. uh, fearless, uh, and he will go anywhere. He will talk about, um, you know, Bill's uh, history of sexual assaults and Hillary's role in covering them up. He will talk about the massive theft uh, going on at the Clinton Foundation. Uh, who knows? I mean, I, he will bring up anything necessary to expose the disastrous record of Hillary Clinton. So there would be no holds barred. Compare that to a career politicians, say a Chris Christie or a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio, none of whom would have the courage to uh, to attack in that manner. So it, it's actually the only way to defeat her is to expose her entire public and private record. All right, well, Roger, I appreciate coming on again. Your two books that people can pick up right now are Jeb and the Bush Crime Family and The Clinton's War on Women. We could get them on Amazon and all different places. Where can we find information on you, Roger, as well? Where can we go? Uh, go to rogerstone.com is the best place, rogerstone.com, no D, or stonezone.com, uh, or stonecoldtruth.com, the three blogs that, uh, that I use to do political commentary and also um, some fashion advice. Well, you're ever in Pittsburgh, I'd love to have a, grab a cup of coffee with you because you're, you are so knowledgeable in all the different things. And uh, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show and explaining things and having a nice uh, conversation. So thanks for calling, and uh, best of luck in your continued support, looking at Trump and your books, and, and trying to make America great again. I guess that's the, the, the motto everyone in the Republican Party will start saying if this goes the way it goes. So thanks again for calling. Well, Ryan. if I get to Pittsburgh, we'll make it a beer. Many thanks. A beer, okay. I will. I will check out your social media and see when you come to Pittsburgh. Take care, Roger. See ya. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor.